Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venue Land, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Our guest today, the, uh, I don't know, legendary, iconic, world-renowned Dave Brooks. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here today. Thanks, for, Dave. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Do not inflate his ego like that, <laughs> Dave. He doesn't need it. <laughs> Dave, where are you at these days? I mean, because, you know, there's Billboard and there's other web publishing and stuff you do. So for somebody who is not familiar, where's Dave Brooks? Right now, I am at Billboard. I'm the senior touring director and the cover for live entertainment. And we were just purchased by Penske Media Group. So we, as of this week, we're part of the same media group as Rolling Stone, Variety, Deadline, Rob Report, all sorts of different publications. So more of a kind of a straight ahead media magazine company. Previously, Billboard had been owned by MRC, which was more of a Hollywood-style film production studio. You know, we uh, it's the media business, it's just like the entertainment business, lots of you know acquisitions and, and mergers and consolidation. But I'm excited. Our new ownership group seems really great, and excited to do some new stuff with them. Now, we're talking to you in your home office, right, today? Right, yeah. We warned us we might have a little interactivity there from the Brooks household. Yeah, so I have a very needy dog who I love, Bandit, and then my son might make an appearance, Wesley, three and a half, but so far he seems to be entertaining himself. We'll cue up the dinosaur songs for you that way, just in oh, case. <laughs> yeah, he loves the dinosaur songs by Howdy Tunes. If you haven't heard them, I mean, there's an entire rock opera dedicated to dinosaurs. <laughs> um, it's pretty cool. As my son is getting ready to start college next year, I miss the dinosaur phase. I'll just say that. Those were good days. <laughs> They're good times. <laughs> Speaking of good times, let's start you off today with a real softball. When can we go back to work? <laughs> <laughs> What's the future? What's going on, Dave? How do you kind of see this all playing out over the next year? And You know, I really don't know. I'm hoping that we can get back to work sometime in September or early fall of next year. It's hard to say. I mean, maybe it could be as soon as the summer. If shows get back going in, say, September, we hope we'll be back months before that, you know, as soon as June or July. But it's going to be a little while, and that's really unfortunate. We have to settle in a bit, you know. How do you see this ramping back up? you think we'll have, like, big touring productions, or are we going to start off with some smaller stuff? I think we're going to see an expansion of the drive-in shows and the pod shows and, and the kind of socially distanced concerts. Talking to a lot of agents, you know, they're really planning for a ramp up of that next year, early spring and summer. And then I think once we reach certain levels of like inoculation, public health officials sign off, you know, then I think we can start seeing a ramp up of shows we are used to. But I, I don't think it's likely that we're going to just start filling arenas. We're going to go from social distance concerts to full arenas overnight. I think it's going to be a slow ramp up and it's going to take a little while. It's funny because when this all started, I think we're taken by surprise by, you know, we all thought, oh, spring break's going to be an extra week or two, but we'll be definitely be back by, you know, summer 2020. How has this impacted you and Billboard and everything that you do? 
I'm really fortunate, honestly, because I've been able to keep working and trying to cover this story as opposed to, say, someone who you know, like works at a building or a promoter or an agent who's seeing their income and their work really affected. A media company creating content people consume over their, mostly over the computer, but through a print magazine, I haven't really had any reduction in workload. But that said, I mean, I've watched just thousands and tens of thousands of friends and people I've known a long time lose their jobs and be really affected, and in some cases, really hurt by this. The other thing I think a lot about is like the tone of how to approach this. And, 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 I know with kids. I think I think a lot about the tone and how to cover and how to think about this, right? It's serious, but how do you add some levity to it? It's a pandemic, but is there a blame sometimes to be assigned to the way everything is handled? How do you do that in an appropriate way? That's something I think a lot about, and it's been a little harder to focus you know, and to figure out what the right thing to cover is. But I feel really blessed that I'm able to still do what I do and try to provide some coverage. And so this is one of the things when you have giving your phone to your child has become a popular parenting method. It's a pacifier, right? Yeah, exactly. You just got to pray that he doesn't figure out how to charge things. Right. (laughs) We've learned all kinds of fun stuff during pandemic. So have you been mostly working from home then during this whole run? Yes. Well, I have an office, actually, a small office, just a couple blocks from my house that I've been working from for a number of years. And I shared it with somebody who is working from home 100%. I am able to kind of get away in that sense. But I'm not in a large office. Billboard's offices and our old offices under our old company, MRC, closed really early in the pandemic. And now our new company, PMC, their offices have closed as well, and they're not reopened yet. Do you think there's going to be more of an emphasis on remote work permanently? You're seeing some other industries like I think Google and some others have announced that they're extending or they're planning to take a different approach to it in the long haul. I think so. I think that you're going to see not only more remote work and more people choosing to kind of work from home and collaborating with tools like this, but I think you're going to see a real reduction in business travel. It's going to be really difficult to justify traveling multi-hour flights, right, in our city to meet somebody for a day or two. I think people will find ways to do things in person. But yeah, I think more people work from home. I think it's probably a really rough, bad time to be like the office leasing business. You know, I think that market's going to drop. But then again, you know, like all things, right? So the value drops and a new generation of people start filling the offices and then we'll have more people working <laughs> from in person as well. There's all sorts of consequences and things that happen that, you know, we don't really anticipate right now, but it'll definitely change the way we work. Yeah. And I think in many aspects for sure. And then what do you see the change in the touring industry? Do you see, you know, as we look five years down the road, are things like they were in 2019 where we're spending tens of thousands of dollars just to make the backstage area look cool? giant productions? Do you see fan experience being the same? Or do you think there'll be some significant changes to the way that the fan is attending a concert or the concerts are being put on a few years down the road? You look, I mean, whether or not tens of thousands of dollars are spent on catering and and extravagantly in green rooms and the list of demands, I'm forgetting what it's called right now, that artists send you, right? The requirement list. Right. The writer, yeah. 
getting more expensive, right? Because it's going to cost of mitigating like virus and cleaning and, and that type of thing. It's going to be costly, I think. And that's going to be related, I think, to the virus and, and inoculations. You know, the news I've seen is just that, um, you know, the vaccines are going to work kind of more like your your, your pets are vaccinated, where you get to be regularly vaccinated, you get booster shots, right? I think it's going to be a concern about viral spread for a long time, is basically what I'm saying. And so I think that's going to cost money. But it's a great question, Dave, in terms of the fan experience, right? Like, are we going to do meet and greets the way we used to do, right? Are we going to, like have people line up and take a picture with the artist, right? Is the artist going to want to stand next to 100 people before going on stage as the kind of people move through meeting groups? I mean, I don't know. You know, I think that as long as there's value and as long as there's money to be made and like... <laughs> there it is, yep. <laughs> premium experiences and VIP stuff, someone will find a way. It will change, but I think at the same time, we'll still be kind of thinking of these things. All the checklists that we do will still be there. Yeah. Merch and main grades before the show and premium on like better sheets over seats further back. I think that'll still be there. We kind of talked the return and when that happens. And obviously so much is unknown still at this point, but what do you think are the first signs of that return that maybe we can look at? Because as we all know, it's more than just on the venue side. You know, so many agents have been laid off or furloughed. You know, it's kind of across the board. It's not like you could go right now and just turn the switch back on because there's no one left to answer the phone call. Right. Yeah. What do you think is the first sign of encouragement that we might see that, okay, you know, William Morris is hiring some people back or, okay, this is happening. It's going to be gradual, but what are the first positives that you think are going to come first? In terms of hiring, it will be the talent buyers at the promotion companies and the venues because they've all been cut loose, you know. And then I think it'll be the marketers started being rehired to market these shows. Those would be the two things I would watch for because they're both going to be necessary. And then maybe, you know, more in the agency business, that's a little bit trickier one to know because even agents, when they get laid off, they still retain their clients usually and they're either doing it on their own or I've seen agents get laid off or fired. And first thing they do is they send an email out saying, hold my dates still. I'm still handling this. I mean, that's the weird thing we don't talk about a lot is that all this is going on. Agents and promoters are continually doing their thing with dates and, and booking dates. Just going through this rigmarole, kind of knowing that the dates they're booking might have been scheduled again and again, but they kind of do it anyways. And there's reasons involving tickets and refunds and stuff like that. They keep going through that process. And I think that's probably a good thing, you know, because it keeps people kind of engaged in something. But maybe you'll see kind of a ramp of ages hiring more assistance and support staff. But those are the three I would watch for talent buyers, marketing at all levels, and then support at the agency base. Great question, Paul. Dave, when you look at the recovery of the industry, we have clubs, we have theaters, we have arenas, we have the stadiums, we have the festivals. Who do you think is best suited for a survival here? And then will festivals continue to be a thing for a while? I think festivals will continue to exist and, and you can manage festivals and manage capacities and kind of come back. If festivals are under the books and they've had refunds, they still have a lot of ticket holders out there and they can make a decision when they finally do return, do they sell more tickets so they go at that capacity? I think they'll be mostly okay. 
I think it's arenas, though, that'll really find a way to come back stronger and, and kind of push the envelope more because that's where the money is. That's really the revenue generator for shows. Sure. You know, the challenge would be being indoors and being close to in proximity. But I mean, I think that the industry wants to get the arena touring back up because it was such a healthy business before. And it's where you make your money. So we made the million dollars, right? So we make those big grosses. And I mean, stadiums, of course, too. Think about this as a percentage of the number of shows that happen. Successfully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That make money. There's not as many as arenas. Yeah. So that's what I'm really looking at. You mentioned the success of festivals. I have a great idea. Mm-hmm. What if we go together and we get like a little private island, right? Uh-huh. And maybe we'll come down for this festival, get some influencers to promote it, and then charge kind of like a premium price people, give them some little cold cuts when they get there. I don't know. I think it could be lit or fire or something. I don't know. I think it's... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that name is taken. <laughs> Just an idea. How did you end up becoming a streaming service voice for the industry? How did you get involved in being a part of this fun? Of the Fire Festival? You were on, I'm trying to remember if you were on the Netflix or Hulu. Yeah, I was on the film Fire Fraud that appeared on Hulu. Yeah. And it was produced by Billboard and Sinmark. I have been covering it. I, so I just started at Billboard around the time the Fire Fest happened. Prior to that, I had my company Amplify, which I launched in 2014. You know, it was basically, I covered the industry. It was all online and, and it was a little bit sensational, a little bit snarky, a lot of fun. And so I went to Billboard and yeah, I mean, look, I think that there was a lot of doubt about the Firefest, whether or not it was going to happen, right? I mean, we started seeing things leak out and it didn't look so good. Like all things that end up like this, right? It wasn't adding up. We've all been part of some of those events. Right, yeah. Not on that scale, but we've all been, yeah, something here is not quite right. Exactly, right? Somebody's over-promising something, Something was missing. Blink-182 pulled out the day before, and that was a big CAA deal. And they went full mode, and they started kind of hinting. Things weren't up to their standards. They, they don't think they could execute a good show. So that was a huge red flag. For me, I mean, simply, I just basically fired up the computer, got a couple agents I know on text messages, and put on the big screen thing I could get on Firefest. It was my war room, as I called it in the movie, and then they... <laughs> They made me correct that, which I thought was a funny part where, you know, I said something like, it's my war room. And they're like, what was your war room? And I was like, well, it's basically just me in my living room. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so then we just covered it. And then like all things with these disasters, everybody involved starts wanting to kind of clear their name. They got somebody else to blame. You call one person, he tells you it's not his fault. And they call the other person. Things start to leak out and all the information. And we were trying to get, and like every other media outlet, so there's just a lot of info out there. And I had no idea in the end how much manipulation had gone into it. I mean, when I finally had saw the documentary, I was shocked, honestly. I didn't even know half of it. It was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. The documentary was really cool. I mean, I basically went to New York for two days and sat with this director in this studio and just exhaustively <laughs> told him everything I could possibly think of. And it's been so interesting after the movie came out. If you remember the history of it, Netflix had a film as well. It was just called Fire. Right. And they really hyped the movie. It was very artistic the way they shot it and produced it. And so 
our company invited, we're going to scoop it, right? And so we secretly went, and I, I had no idea either, but they secretly went into like hyper production mode and they prepared this movie and they got it all ready to go as close as they can. And then they dropped the film the Monday before Netflix's film was to come out on a Friday. And so that created a tire like rivalry yeah. between movies that like made it bigger than I think it would ever have been. Agreed. They kind of helped each other. Yeah. This moment of two dueling documentaries, it became huge. Then they got crazy again. Our director, we had licensed the footage from Billy McFarlane, who's the, the mastermind, so to speak, right, of the festival, which he technically owned according to court. And that money went into a victim's compensation fund. We were, you know, accused of paying Billy, and, and that was never really explained. You have to remember, our film had interviews with Billy McFarlane where I, right. they really broke him down, right? I mean, he really looked bad, and he kind of made a culpa at the end. He went back and forth, and then finally, very recently, I'd say, you know, last month, the Netflix filmmakers who shot it are being sued now by the bankruptcy trustee in that case, saying that their footage belonged to the estate. Okay. And because basically the guys with the footage never got paid, so they took the position, well, this is ours then, and sold it to Netflix. And the bankruptcy trustee was like, no, you can't do that. And so we'll see what happens now. I doubt they'll have a trial. If they did, that would be awesome. The story after the story, right? It's like the Firefest keeps aflame. Yeah, you know, they'll figure it out. And it's just a lesson in, in life. I had no idea how bankruptcy really worked at all, right, before this. I declare bankruptcy. Yeah, exactly. Well, the lesson was like, if someone doesn't pay you, and then they go into bankruptcy, those assets that you have in your possession, just set them aside. Don't sell them because someone's going to come looking for them. So it was just such a great, fascinating, uh, both movies, you know, obviously uh, kind of attacked it differently. They were, yeah, they were both great. But for those of us in the industry, it was just a fascinating look behind the scenes. And it was great to follow your coverage of it and then kind of see how it all played out. And it was just some, some great stuff there. Yeah. And the director, Jed Yorkman, I mean, he did an amazing job. I thought both films were great. You know, ours felt kind of more like a, a wacky Dateline episode, you know? There's something I covered, I was, I was amazed, you know? And there's some of the characters of both of the films, right? I mean, you know, our guy, Delroy. Yes. He's awesome. And then, of course, the woman, I don't know her name, but at the end of the Netflix film, who really made an emotional plea about being out tens of thousands of dollars. And then who could have forget Andy King, the water guy? Right, sure. I mean... <laughs> I mean, just, these characters were just incredible. I was fortunate enough to meet Delroy. He came to the United States for an episode of American Greed, which they shot in which I didn't participate in that episode, but I had participated in an episode about something else, and we were being produced the same day. When they told me, we're going to combine you with a fire festival. I was like, oh, great. That's awesome. <laughs> Story of my life. Yeah. So, Hey, before you became a streaming service superstar, you know, and working for a billboard, right? Let's take you back a little bit. Dave Brooks, you're 13 years old. Uh -huh. Where are you and where do you think your life is headed? What do you think you're going to do with your life? I grew up in the Bay Area. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of like the East Bay. like the suburbs of Berkeley and Oakland. And you can say San Francisco because the big city. I've been a music fan my whole life. Started going to shows as, as soon as I could, you know, 14, 
15, my mom dropping me off at like small shows in the suburbs, you know, coffee shops and, and parking garages and, and vet halls. And as I got older, I kept going to shows. I got really into punk and ska and hardcore and all that stuff when I was a teenager. I went to college at UC Santa Cruz and I realized, you know, that there was no girls that would go to any of these punk shows, right? All these punk shows, it was all dudes. And so I realized I was in Santa Cruz, you know, I had to change my game up a little bit on the concert, <laughs> the music scene. So that's why I started getting more into all kinds of music really then, you know, first hip hop and, and reggae and jam music and, and all kinds of music, right? Like, of course, Santa Cruz is like a little more hippie focus. And then I started working in the school newspaper, the City on the Hill Press. And I realized I really enjoyed, you know, being a, a journalist covering, you know, the um, Board of Regents or just like the small, you know, scandals that, or, or things that happen at in a college, especially one of those where people live in the dorms and yeah, fun stuff, but, but kind of serious too, I guess, like to the people who are living there. I had thought that I was, my, my major is in international, you know, relations. And I had wanted, I thought I had wanted to, you know, go into that. I even had an internship at the Atlantic Council in DC, which is like kind of like the think tank for NATO and I also had spent time in Valle de Lid, Spain, studying Spanish, which I have a minor in. I thought I wanted to do that, but I just, I don't know, I didn't really like DC and and, and I was and I kind of really into more and more into journalism. So it's almost like, thank God for, for humanity in the world. I, I did not get into diplomacy because <laughs> I mean, whatever we're doing, it would be worse. If, you know, I can't imagine representing us in internet development or whatever I thought I was going to do. And so right out of college, first job I had was at a newspaper in Watsonville, California, and Watsonville is like 15 miles south of Santa Cruz. So, you know, about like 80 miles south of San Francisco. So you're still in Northern California, not really the Bay Area. You're more like close to Silicon Valley. And it's a beautiful area. It's really all strawberries, at least from the Western United States are from. One of the things that taught me was that there's news everywhere. Like there's always things going on. There's always scandal. You can make it what you want. And so, you know, I really excelled there and I got my big break when using my investigative reporting, I uncovered the fact that the mayor of the town was going out at night and getting into bar brawls. That's a story. I was hoping it was going to be something strawberry related. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that was the strawberries. You know, that was everything. Those farm workers and like stuff. I mean, that, that was like social justice elements too. I mean, that were like a big deal. This is the land of uh, Cesar Chavez too, right? United farm workers and, right. and, and that whole movement. So there was a lot of history there. Yeah, the mayor was going out at night. He was a really young guy. He was 26 years old, ex-Navy. Really promising career, I, I honestly think. But going out at night, getting in bar brawls, and one guy got beat up by him and his friends, and he called me, and he told me the whole story, and we, went, we retraced it, and we went from, like, bar to bar, and the police reports, and the guy got censored, and, like, he was no longer the mayor. Wow. It was just a crazy time, and I really enjoyed it. So here we go. Okay. The phone's broken. It's not really. No. <laughs> 
okay. So that was the first, and then I went to the so so there was that was a registered Pomeranian, and then I got recruited to the LA Times, and I moved to LA. I went Hollywood. I did that for two years. There's this very famous meeting. The LA Times got sold to uh, this guy named Sam Zell, the, the, the Tribune Company. Yep. And uh, he came to LA Times. We had a town hall with him, and he people were asking him like hard questions, like journalists do. And he gave the bird. He flipped off one of the reporters and, and threw an expletive at her. And it was kind of like, whoa. You know, and I was thinking, I, like, I need to get out of here. Like, this is about to get bad. And, and, and they started laying people off and everything. And so then I went to work for Venues Today magazine and I worked for Linda Deckard. You know, she hired me. You know, basically, I could see the newspapers weren't great. This guy seemed, you know, like nuts. And so she gave me a job and she gave me my start. I worked for her for eight years. Were you looking for something kind of in that industry or were you just looking for different journalism opportunities and it kind of came along and you were like, yeah, why not? You know, I like music. Or was it kind of more of a conscious decision to go into that field? I'd say all of the above. I think that like I had always kind of side worked at, in the arts and music and, and doing music reviews and like working with bands and you know, I was supposed to cover one thing, but I want to like find a way to get these bands in the paper too. And I was always kind of like push and pull. And so, so when I, I started looking at like magazines and stuff, I saw that job. I, I was like into it right away, but I, I had no idea like what it was going to really be about. You know, I didn't, I went into it thinking I was going to be talking about like the new Beastie Boys album or pairing, you know, top five moments at Coachella. And it was like, no, it was like a business publication, right? I mean, it was how the business worked. Yeah, sure. I learned a lot. It really set me up to do what I do now. You know what I mean? I learned so much from Linda. And what really appealed to me was that I got to go to events like the Event uh, Arena Conference, right? I got to go to all these conferences like and travel all over the United States and Canada to conferences and meeting everybody and really getting to know the industry. It, it was not what I thought it would be at all, but it was it really um, set me up to do what I do now. Walk us through that transition though, because once, you know, obviously you had, you know, built up quite a relationship base in, at venues today. And then what made you realize it was time for a change? You know, like it's like any job. I think that like venues today was very informative and the publications reflect the people's personalities who run them. And I think it reflected Linda's personality, you know, um, and I think it was a real celebration of, you know, the venue industry. It was almost kind of like the hometown paper of the, the business. Yeah, very much so. I wanted to do like more scandalous stuff. I wanted to be more investigative. I wanted to like pump up the drama. And, and I wanted to like, I mean, I just saw all these things going on at the time I viewed as like, we're not covering that. And, and I wanted to be more stylized to more look like Spin or, or Rolling Stone like in the 90s. Right, or the right. zines I used to read. I'm really influenced by that, you know? And so... I decided to leave and to start my own publication. Was that, was that scary to kind of get out there and do that on your own? Yeah, it was scary, you know. And look, I will say that, like, you know, first separating from Linda didn't go great. And there was some bad feelings on both sides, you know. But we've since amended that, and, and I really respect her a lot. And I know that she respects what I do, too. She still attends events, and she's still doing her thing, and... It was scary, you know, it was because um, I had no idea, you know, if I was going to be successful or, or what was going to happen. I mean, I, I thought if this doesn't work, I was going to go, 
I don't know what I was going to do, but like, you know, just, I was going to not be a journalist probably if this didn't work out. And so, you know, I launched my site and I started covering news and, and I made it free for a while. And I remember I started charging right for the content. And I remember the day that I turned on the paywall and started charging a hundred dollars per membership. I hit send on the like, please join for paid membership, right? I, I went and brushed my teeth and I'm looking in the mirror, brushing my teeth, you know, and I'm thinking like, man, if this doesn't work out, this is it. This is like the test. Yeah. I don't get anything Like, you're going to have to like, you're like you're, if you don't get a couple of people signing up. Oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Yeah. If you don't get people signing up today, it's not a good sign. And I went back to my computer and 10 people had signed up while I was brushing my teeth. You were like, I'm a millionaire. <laughs> right, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, but no, I thought, okay, I have a business, you know? I have a business now. Yeah. And it, it changed the way that I really had thought about everything. I do re- remember having these early conversations with you yeah. really early where we would talk on the phone and even when you were just yeah. spitballing names and like, I don't know, what do you think about Amplify or should it be Amp something? Should it da, 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 da? And, and it was always really interesting just to sort of see you work through that process from afar and sort of hearing you brainstorm ideas. And and then of course, looking at the milestones, just like you said. So, you know, you would have these kind of fears of, Oh, you know, I think I'm going to do this and hopefully it works and we'll see. And then, Ooh, Hey, I got up to this many members. Ooh, I got up to this many. Ooh, I got this group of promoters and agents kind of joined on. And it was kind of these little success marks, which were really great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And yes, we were like, we'd have long conversations and I, I, yeah, I mean, I, of course I remember that, Paul, you know, and we threw out, I mean, some of the names, I remember throwing out crazy, ridiculous names. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some of them that we had, like amalgamations of words, like concert, exper- concert experience, and I, I, I got to find the list somewhere. But yeah, you. I mean, you know, you got to talk these things through, and you definitely were somebody that the main person I was talking is through, and I like, you told me like the truth. <laughs> yeah. Right. You like, well, I was like, I trusted your opinion because like you were honest about it. And, and it was great to like have you help me with, with everything and be part of it. It was, it was an awesome time. You know, it was the best time of my life. It was a little wild west during that era. It was the wild west. And my wife, I mean, we were making all this merch that we think so. And yeah, you're designing logos. Designing and like, logos hey, I think I'm going to make this. And yeah. yeah, every once in a while, I'll see that pop up in my timeline on Facebook. I'll see your launch video that you made where you were out on your your street. And yeah, it was all very dramatic and black and white, but it was kind of like amplified. It's coming soon. Bandit, my dog. It's so funny just to think about. Yeah. You know, it seems like so long ago and also not that long ago. It's, it's kind of amazing. You know, look, I wanted to do it my way, right? And I think everybody knows how that feels. I learned a lot from that, you know. I learned the benefits and the difficulties in, in, of doing that, you know. And, and look, I mean, you know, I hired somebody, full-time journalist uh, at Amplify to work with me. And we had been talking about it the other day, and it, it was great. We, I loved it, but we were both said, like, you know, thank God I sold the company to Billboard because I don't know yeah. if we would have survived this, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, this whole run, yeah. Yeah, survived COVID-19. How did you get that transition? How did that happen where Billboard, you find out Billboard's interested? Amplify was doing really well, and we had a deal with Polestar. Remember, we were powered by Polestar for a year, and right. And then Tim Lightwicky came in, and uh, 
disrupted the, the business. And, and I think in a positive way, you know, um, he added value to it, right? I mean, like he bought venues today and then he hired Ray Waddell, who used to be a billboard to run venues today. And then, then he bought Polestar, right? And to run both. And you start seeing him putting this media company together. And so, I mean, Ray's job opened up, you know, Billboard came to me and they basically said, we want you to take Ray's job. They weren't sure about buying Amplify at first, you know, I insisted that it be part of the deal because it had value. I mean, it was making, it was a profitable company. I mean, it was profitable because I barely paid myself anything and I didn't spend a lot. Right. And the costs were low. And so they said, okay, so it was kind of, the deal was like, okay, let's start talks and start negotiations, you know? And so we did that within about four months to be starting there in 2017. You know, we had the outlines of a deal. They were going to acquire and amplify and uh, hire Taylor, who Taylor Mims works with me. And then it just took, you know, forever. Uh, well, I say seven months, eight months to like get the deal done. And then more months to announce it. And this just just takes forever. Yeah, sure. You know, and we did it. And then, you know, now they own it. Obviously, the group MRC that managed Billboard previously, they had to put this like the president who bought Amplify left Billboard shortly after buying it. Right. We had one idea. It didn't end up happening. MRC kind of sat on it and, and they maintained the IP for it. And they decided not to fold the content into Billboard. And they did okay at that. And now Penske owns the rights to it. They seem very interested in doing something with it. So hopefully they do. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, there's some Amplify media breathes a new life again. How does this all morph into the real? The real started, you know, as the newsletter for Amplify. And after the billboard sale, I kept running it with their approval. It came up more like billboard stuff, right? And I just kept doing it, running it. And then when the pandemic hit, it started to slow down and we kind of had to try to find ourselves a bit. And I think we started to redesign it. And then I heard from um, the billboard lawyers, <laughs> hey, just pause on that for a minute, right? I had no idea why. And then the sale happened. And so I, I'm sure it was them just kind of buttoning everything up, you know? you know. I started getting a lot of questions from the attorneys about Amplify, like two years after the sale. I, I, had, no, I, I had no idea, like, why are they asking me all this, this stuff? Like, and I think they did the sale and they just wanted to keep everything buttoned up. So Penske says we're going to keep it going and I'm excited about that. It was, it was tough to, to restart it and then stop, you know, but yep. we're back in action, I'm being told. So and, then, and, then, <laughs> and that's, that's the thing about going corporate selling, you know, like I'm a company guy now, you know, I take direction. I, right, sure. I, mean, I can do my thing and I can write my articles and I, I, I'm lucky that like I, I get participated in that, but I'm, I, I'm still, I'm like, I'm a, I'm an employee. Right. Sure. Really. I understand that. And that took some adjustment, but I think a lot of pride in the billboard brand, you know, it's a 125 year old company and I really see how much it means to people. It means a lot to me. And so, um, and you can't really tell, I'm, I'm repping the billboard even now. I got my, my billboard long sleeve on. Uh, <laughs> I have so much, bill, like just like I had before, I had so much amplified clothing that I made. I have so much <laughs> billboard clothing. I'll expect some of that in the mail. Thank you. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do you have to tone down the snark at all? I mean, that's the whole yeah. thing about being an employee, right? Yes. So all of a sudden now you might have something you want to launch into a little bit, but also they're a big advertiser. That's That's got to be tough for you to balance on a, on a personal level. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> just, a, man, just a guess. Yeah. Like two years of being told to tone it down. No one would ever say, like, don't do this because of an advertiser, you know? But, but they would say, like, we expect you to maintain a kind of certain certain neutrality on things, you know, uh, a certain tone, right? You know, you, you have to be um, professional. Don't be a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> and, so, and so that was a struggle for me at first, but I'm not, it's taught me a lot too. You know, I agree with what, I agree with the way they look at it. You know, Hannah Carp is the editor now and she's from the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, she taught me a lot of stuff. I mean, I mean, she taught me so much about just this job. It's like kind of like the show don't tell type of thing, right? Like give the person the facts. Sure, they want some analysis. Of course, people love that stuff, but like give the person the facts. And if you provide them with the information, then they can make their decision and it, it seems more credible. And that's her approach and our approach. And I, I, I agree with that. I've seen that work. So, you know, obviously it's been quite the journey. Congratulations on Billboard because I do think that's just a true legendary place to be. Thank you. So what's the future of Billboard? You know, I mean, is as we talk about the future of the live event industry, print, yeah. magazines, you know, uh, uh, is it magazines? Is it online? Is it, you know, is it the in-person events? What's Billboard like, you know, it's kind of heading through this and emerging into the next decade? Well, that's a great question, you know. <laughs> if I, I mean, I don't, we don't know, you yeah. know. I mean, it's not, it's a, the media is not a great business, really. I mean, but I think that's, that's what, our new ownership is trying to figure out, really. You know, it, look, I mean, it's got to be something that claws back some of the advertising money from the from the social media networks like Google uh, and Facebook. And it's also got to be a mix of, of revenue generators. It's got to be more events, licensing the billboard name, you know, that type of thing, you know. So, um, and my, my son always, when I was asking me, he says, how about we do this? Wesley, here you go. Um, he's very, he's like his dad, I think. He's good. Poor child. Poor child. Yeah. Here you go, Wes. Here you go. This is Wes. Wes, you want to say hi really quick? Say hi. Hey, bud. I mean, look, it, there's a lot to figure out. We still don't figure out how to make the cost lower than the, the revenue. And that's a challenge. Sure. So I don't like the music business, too. I mean, you really think about it, you know, all the great acts kind of pay for everybody else. And I kind of think that it's always going to be a business of people who have a lot of money, who, who have a vision, who want to get into it, and whether or not they succeed. There's demand for the information, you know. What we've done a great job of is charging for it or monetizing. We need to think about that more. I believe the future is the original reporting and the information you can't get anywhere else. And I don't really think that it's like the clickbait stuff. Uh, yeah, sure. Or like just the like sensational headlines and, and that type of stuff. I, I, I think that's a race to the bottom. Oh, well, speaking of things you have no control over, talk about dad life. How has dad life changed Dave Brooks? It's totally changed me, you know, um, I hope for the better. You know, my kids rule the roost. So much of my life is kind of built around their schedules. And just, you know, having this, this young human being who wants something, and you've got to kind of figure out like, whoa, you know, I got to put my needs or my priorities on hold for this child. And I got to figure out how to communicate with this person. And you find like the kind of the most rewarding moments, you know, are 
the, the ones that you never thought you'd appreciate, you, you know, just like your son, you know, your son hugging you uh, as he goes to sleep or just enjoying a movie together. Like um, our two favorites, you know, I've got him into are the Goonies. Classic. And uh, PB's Big Adventure. Nice. And he oh, loves man. it. And that, that kind of stuff, I never thought that would be so much fun. I have a daughter, a one and a half year old daughter who is a totally different personality than my son and it's been so much fun like having her personality come out too all my time with the kid every free second every free moment it sounds like he's maybe a bit of you and then maybe she's more like Kristen you know Kristen my wife yeah for anyone who's met Dave's wife they have a lovely balance of personalities you know they're very <laughs> yeah they're very different it's a Great balance, though. It's lovely, but they're very different, and it complements well. Yeah, we're very different. My son is like me that my, my wife is paying for. <laughs> <laughs> my, wife is, my wife is paying for my past, uh, or just you know, my, my childhood. Um, but yeah, my, my wife is, you know, she's a nurse practitioner. She's one of the nicest people, and I'm so lucky to have her. How long have you guys been married? We got married in 2012. Okay. And, and we've known each other since college. So she's seen you through it all. She's seen me through it all, and she's been with me through it all, and she supports me. I wouldn't have done any of this without Kristen. I mean, honestly, especially Amplify. I, I wouldn't have been able to done it because she was working the whole time as a nurse and helping support it financially and, and support us in the beginning, you know. And you know, she's my co-founder. She was the co-founder of Amplify. You know, that's always been important to both of us. So shout out to you, babe. I'm sure she's had an interesting go of it, too, during all these times, particularly just because of her field. Yeah, being a nurse during COVID is really stressful. Well, she mostly now is focusing back on home health, time she has spent doing ICU and those things. I mean... I mean, look, if you were in the ICU with COVID, you'd want her as your nurse. I think she's very professional and, and has empathy. That Not everybody does. You know, I mean, if you're seeing people go through that, going through COVID, you're almost trained to, like, be kind of robotic about it. They almost train the empathy out of you. And then because you have, people have to, I think, to, like, cope and go home at night, right? And I think that she's been able to excel with that, but, but you know, and do really well. But then at the same time, I'm kind of like, well, don't do, don't do too well on the ICU because we're going to get you out of there and come back to home health. You know, her hospital's done a great job. None of the medical workers have contracted it since April. It's great. I mean, they take this stuff super seriously. And that's been, I've learned a lot about the virus and it's, it's eye-opening, you know, and, and yeah. it's scary. Um, but things are getting better, I think, in terms of treatment and, and hopefully we can turn the corner on this thing, hopefully, I hope soon. I look forward to the days when our biggest worry is who's booking shows into the Greek, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, man. So true. I can't wait for some drunken idiot to yell Freebird. Yeah, right. That's going to be the best day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Dave, before we let you go here, get back to the dad life. We're going to do a little fast five here. I got five questions for you. We're just going to do rapid fire. Just looking for you. a quick answer for you. So if you if you are ready, we'll launch into it. Go. First concert. Bashing Pumpkins. Favorite concert. 
Oh, um, favorite concert, Rage Against the Machine Muse yes. for LA Rising with Paul Hooper with me. Yes. God, that was amazing. That that may be my favorite concert too. Gosh, last Rage show too, right? We thought they were coming back and then that all got bumped because of COVID. Nicest artist you've ever met. I'd say George Strait was extremely nice. Uh, tie between George Strait and Garth Brooks. Favorite venue uh, for live music? I'm going to say the Greek theater. I love the Greek. It is a great venue. Last question. What is the Dave Brooks theme song? So there's a TV show about your life. Cameras follow you around Kardashian style, right? And the theme song comes on for the show. What is the song that sums up the Dave Brooks show? Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. Nice. (laughs) Well done. Beautifully chosen. Dave Brooks, it's been great having you on today. If somebody wants to follow you or follow along with Billboard or, or The Real, give us give us all the uh, the best places to check in. Um, you know, I honestly, the best thing to do would be to just email me, dave.brooks at billboard.com or follow, you know, uh, Billboard Biz. Follow Billboard Biz on Twitter. <laughs> and hopefully I'll get, my son will be... Um, you can also, you know, soon contact Wet Wesley and he'll give you all the real insight in, into the latest dinosaur albums coming out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dinosaur rock and roll. Thank you for the time today. I know you're busy and we uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for listening to Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. And until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>